1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Alexis McLeod, Associate Professor of Philosophy in Asian and Asian American Studies at the University of Connecticut. I'm co-host of this channel along with Robert Talese, Carrie Figdor, and Sarah Tyson. I'm joined today by David Chai, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. He's here to discuss his new book, Zhuangzi and the Becoming of Nothingness. Well, thanks for joining me, David, today to talk about your book on, uh, on one of my favorite texts, uh, the Zhuangzi. Um, so I wanted to begin by asking you just uh, how you got into philosophy and how you came into the topic of this book in particular.
2: Well, uh, thank you for uh, inviting me to um, chat with you about uh, sure. one of the uh, Chinese thinkers that I, I adore the most, uh, Zhuangzi. Um, I actually fell into Taoism kind of uh, accidentally. Um, my, my original undergrad degree was not in philosophy, but in architecture. And uh, uh, that kind of gave me a mindset for looking at the world um, in a, a very organized um, uh, manner, a different way of viewing the relationship between things. Um, and uh, having finished the degree in architecture, I, I decided I wanted to actually come and work in in Asia because uh, in the '90s uh, this is where all the big construction was being uh, uh, conducted. So I, I um, uh, switched universities, uh, University of Toronto, and uh, I wanted to learn one year of Chinese language as kind of preparation for uh, this big journey that I as uh, Kind of naive, uh, young adult had um, to just pack up and go to Asia. Uh, So I was uh, taking a course on Chinese, and I uh, happened to come across another course on Taoism. And I had, you know, no knowledge of what Taoism was. So I said, "Well, why not? I'll just, I'll just have a go at it." And it turned out to be uh, the best course that I uh, I took in all of my years. Uh, afterwards uh, in university. Um, I remember quite vividly the uh, the very first lecture It was in a big auditorium and the Prof uh, Leonard Priestley, uh, who does Taoism and um, uh, Indian Buddhism uh, just had a chair and he brought it to the very front of the stage and he sat there and there's about 200-300 people you know uh, in the auditorium listening. And he just read the text. He read a line, he explained it. He read another line, he explained it. And it just fascinated me. And uh, that piqued my interest. Um, So after doing that course, I decided to investigate more. And I did other courses related to Chinese philosophy, uh, literature, aesthetics. Um, And in those days uh, in Toronto, there was uh, a uh, very um, established group of scholars, Julia Ching, Alan Chan, Richard Lin, um, uh, as well as Leonard Priestley, uh, Will Oxtabe. So all these well known scholars uh, were there in one place. So I just took advantage of uh, their presence and I, I did as, as many courses as I could. Uh, and the more I studied Chinese thought, literature, philosophy, uh, art theory, the more I fell in love with it. So I abandoned my um, my, my, my planned illustrious career in architecture. <laughs> uh, I had my midlife crisis in my early 20s, so I abandoned that. I said, there's no way I'm going to be successful in that. Uh, and I said, uh, this is what I want to do. And for some reason, I had the insight uh, of knowing that if I'm going to do this, meaning Chinese philosophy, as a career path, I needed to go to grad school, uh, so that was that was my my road laid out for me um, as an undergrad, and that's what I ended up doing. I, I was trained in sinology, um, uh, so over the years of of reading these texts, quite quite a, a good number of years. Uh, now it's it's what's uh, about thirty years. Um, so it's become, you know, part of my life. I, I'm not a, a practicing Taoist, um, but you can't help but kind of embody part of the, the philosophy. Uh, and that comes out uh, not only in, in my writing, but uh, in my teaching as well. So it's uh, a very interesting uh, turn of events. And uh, you also realize that that time period in China Uh, 6th century, 5th century, 4th century BC there's a lot of similar things going on in other parts of the world. So that's also a fascinating um, aspect of human history, um, cultural history, uh, that uh, I like to to uh, dig into and um, uh, ask my students about that and this this kind of isolation of China, of India, of uh you know the uh, persia or um in uh, south america you know the the mayans and so on uh, we're all talking about quite similar things but the the solutions or or the answers that all these different groups come up with to these similar questions are are vastly different and i just find that fascinating um it just so happens to be that uh, i've chosen to focus on On China. Um, Of course, the China of antiquity, 2,500 years ago, is is certainly hugely different from the China, say, even of the past thousand years. Um, And yet, somehow, uh, Taoism has managed to survive since the very beginning, all the way up to uh, the modern era, either as a practicing form of religion or as a, a, a living philosophy in the different uh, uh, manifestations that it has, either in in kind of uh, meditative practices or in um, Eastern metaphysics or what have you. Um, So this book uh, is the first in a series that I intend to write, where I try to weave out of the text, aspects of Taoist thought, that have not really been discussed by either sinologists or philosophers of Eastern thought or people uh, doing comparative philosophy. Um, and the reason that I felt the need to do that, again, is because of all the years that I've spent with these uh, key texts, uh, the Zhuangzi, uh, the Tao Te Ching of Laozi, the Liezi, Wenzi, and so on, and others. Um, it seems to me that uh, Western academics have been only addressing a few of the issues present in the text, and that there is a larger underlying um, framework, if you will, that nobody is really talking about. Or if they do talk about, it's maybe a paragraph or two in a chapter uh, or in a, in, a, in a journal paper. So, This uh, this first volume, which is devoted to the metaphysical aspect of um, uh, Taoist thought, with a focus on Zhuangzi, um, is my attempt to to show readers and other scholars that hey, Taoism isn't just what we have been taught to think of it as being, you know, just a a cluster of concepts that people keep repeating over and over. Uh, The Zhuangzi is such a rich such a nuanced text, and there's so much there that um, is waiting for us to discover, even more so if we uh, read the commentaries that have been written on this text, uh, more than 200 over the history of, uh, of China. And yet nobody really uh, attempts to translate these commentaries or to incorporate them into their um, teaching or their discussion of philosophy or Daoist philosophy, more broadly speaking. Um, so this is also another thing that has found its way into the book. I try to uh, incorporate um, some of the more uh, key or interesting um, observations of commentators, uh, not just from one period, but over several dynastic periods to show a kind of evolution or a development in the way this text has been received, the way people are reading it differently in different historical periods, um, again to show readers that uh, the reception of ancient text uh, is not a static thing, and I think maybe the general public might take it for granted. Uh, certainly in Western philosophy, oh, you read uh, you know Aristotle's Metaphysics, uh, and since it was written up until today, there's only one way to read it. There's only one way to to understand it, and the same applies for all philosophical or religious texts um, throughout the world. Uh, and uh, I, clearly that's not the case. So with Zhuangzi, because it's a difficult text um, in terms of its language, its its, its uh, argumentative style, it's received um, a lot less attention than the Tao Te Ching. Um, so I've chosen a text one, because the Tao Te Ching, it's kind of overdone. Everybody is talking about it. Two, because I, I have a personal affinity with the Zhuangzi, um, And three, because I can relate personally uh, on a daily uh, life um, level to much of what the text says, uh, despite the fact that it's 2,500 years old. And I think it's very hard for us to say the same thing with any other you know, uh, philosophical texts. There's, of course, a number of them were religious texts, but the majority, uh, uh, we can't do that. We can't actually put it into practice. Uh, they're not written in that way. And I think Taoism is written in such a way that it's it's there for the reader to actually uh, act upon, rather than just put it on a bookshelf and leave it uh, until you're bored, you know, a rainy day, and you pick it up and you read it. So, oh, that's interesting. Uh, so what? Uh, I think Taoism is uh, uh, trying to get rid of the so what question and say, oh, that's interesting. How can I use this? How can it help me? Right? How can I um, deepen my, my understanding of life or uh, of my relationship with other people? Um, so there's, there's affinities there with Taoism and say Buddhism um, and yet the two never had any interaction. Uh, until the medieval period in China uh, but in the time the Zhuangzi was written of course China was, was uh, in its own own world uh, and the fact that uh, the text the author Zhuangzi Zhuangzhou wrote a text as brilliant as it is it, it, today uh, having read it so many times um, you know it still amazes me that this guy could write what he did in the way that he did Without any of the modern conveniences of technology, science, and, and so on, so um, this is this is one reason I've, you know, focused in my career on this text, and one reason why I, I want to spend, um, you know, good good effort in writing uh, a series of books, uh, uh, sharing with my fellow academic, you know, peers and with the general public, um, all of that Taoism has to offer that you, you can't really find in a journal article or in a, a chapter in an anthology. So uh, I came to it by accident, but uh, uh, it, it certainly worked out uh, very well.
1: <laughs> one of the things you mentioned there, which I thought was really interesting, is this kind of the living nature of Taoism, of right? And the, and the kind of style of Taoism too. And one, of, one of the things I really appreciate about your the way that you write is you can see that style in your, in your writing, right? It's not like, you know, with a lot of, uh, a lot of work on, on Chinese philosophy, you know, it comes, especially a lot of the work that I read and in 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 kind of what I work with is it's not very much like the Zhuangzi, right? We're talking about the Zhuangzi in this way that's more like what you'll find in analytic philosophy or whatever. But when you read your book, a lot of the ways that you style things are similar to what's in the Zhuangzi, which is really cool. And and I think can actually help us kind of see insights from the Zhuangzi. What I wanted to ask you about that is that with were, is that was was that just kind of like a, a result of reading the text, or did you uh, purposefully say I'm going to write this in a way that's stylistically similar, or how, how did that come about? Uh, that's that's actually been a criticism of mine.
2: Uh, right. Is that I, right. <laughs> I, I, I I sound more Zhuangzi than Zhuangzi, so. Uh, that's great. That's great. We understand the text. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I take that as a compliment, but for some people, um, you know, it makes uh, uh, reading some of my work a bit more challenging than perhaps they would, they would like. Um, it's a very poetic way of, of writing. Um, part of that has, has been this, this kind of rubbing off that I mentioned of, of the actual text. Um but also part of it, uh, and this is something in, in my published work that um, uh, I've discussed quite, um, quite a lot, uh, in doing my PhD, because I was trained in sinology and not in Western philosophy, uh, in, in the first two years of my PhD studies, uh, I kind of read a lot of Western philosophy, uh, a lot of the major thinkers from the ancient Greeks, um, you know, so the the catchword that I like to use in, in a lot of my my writing, meontology, actually is an ancient Greek word uh, from uh, Parmenides. So the Greek word meon, uh meaning not being, the study of not being or non-being, this is where I get that from. Um, so having read the ancient Greeks uh, and then jumping into the medieval and then to the, the moderns, the, the early moderns, uh, like Hegel, uh, uh, I didn't do any Kant. Uh, his writing style, I just couldn't. I couldn't deal with. So I, I no, <laughs> no, 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 no Kant for me. But uh, Hegel has has some stuff about um, non-being and and nothingness. And um, uh, but the the, the the modern figure that had the greatest influence on me, of course, was uh, was Heidegger. Uh, and I do a lot of comparative work with Heidegger and Taoism. Of course, uh, Heidegger was influenced by Taoism, um, even though he didn't openly uh, credit Taoism uh, with some of his ideas. Uh, it's it's it wasn't the German way of doing uh, doing that, or the way that Heidegger in particular did that. Um, but Heidegger's way of of writing is is uh, is very poetic, and you add to that the very poetic way of Zhuangzi, and having read. You know, the, the, uh, the works of Heidegger and the drawings of text. Um, yeah, I think I kind of made it into my own my own writing style. Uh, I can't write a very dry, analytically kind of, you know, structured paper. I, I just can't do that. Uh, even when I was a grad student or an undergrad student, I just couldn't write that way. And the drawings that kind of helped me find my voice. So this is something that, um, you know, I also share with my students is that when you're writing a paper, don't try and copy somebody else's writing style, Write in your own style. You need to, especially for a PhD student, you know, this is the training, the training time of your life to become uh, you know, a scholar. So you have to find your own voice. You have to find what appeals to you and express it in a way that is natural for you, that is comfortable for who you are. So for me, uh, writing about Taoist philosophy in a kind of poetic, um, circular way without being too obscure uh, or too fancy in the language. You know, uh, another thing that people have remarked is uh, my vocabulary um, tends to be a a bit dated. So the, the copy editors, they tend to correct some of my words for more modern variants. And I said, no, 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 no! Don't do that. You know, I chose that word because you know it kind of rolls off the tongue very nicely, and you know, so I, it's, it's, it's like part of me is stuck in Victorian England. You know, I just uh, maybe because I like watching a lot of Sherlock Holmes movies, and you know, <laughs> just so uh, yeah, the writing style is is uh, uh, it's not deliberate. It just it's just another kind of lucky accident that um, happened to find my way into. Uh, you know my 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 professional um, my professional life. I don't speak like that. You know when I'm when I'm uh, with with friends or colleagues or whatnot. So that would be a bit odd. Uh, but I, I, it's just uh, and also uh, you know uh, on a totally different topic. You know when I write, there's a particular kind of music that I listen to, and that's jazz improv. And and in particular, one guy. Keith Jarrett. So when I when I listen to Keith Jarrett, and you know this, I've mentioned to you this to 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 you before. When I when I listen not to his his uh, quartets but his solo piano stuff, for some reason that gets my creative juices flowing. Right. So I listen to him for an hour or two, and I can write a couple of pages of text, and it's like my brain shuts off and nothing else comes out. So you know, I work in spurts, and the stuff comes out. It comes out very, very fluidly, very naturally, very poetically, and there's no way I can I can uh, put my my finger on to you know how I do it, why I do it, right? So it's it, it's not by design, uh, it's accidental, but uh, it all comes together in the end. You know, it's like uh, it's it's like telling a story. So I start off and you work your way through and you kind of go off on different tangents. And then in the end, you wrap it all up and you go back to the beginning and you represent what you've uh, initially said you were going to do. Uh, So I I think, you know, being broadly trained, right? As a generalist philosopher, non-specialist outside of Chinese philosophy, uh, I think that's also a benefit. You know, if, if you, for example, if you do analytic philosophy and you, you just work on a particular individual and you only write for your whole career on that one individual, uh, it kind of uh, makes you blind to, you know, everything else that's going on. And I think part of the message of Taoism uh, is about removing those blinders, right? It's about seeing the world in, uh, I forgot the, uh, the I'm thinking of Austin Powers, right? had The, yeah, the, the <laughs> you know, like the whole rainbow of colors, right? What, what's the uh, 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 spectrum of colors? The, he had a weird thing in one of his movies, but um, uh, I think you know that was trying to see the world like that. So um, I, I try to do that in my writing. I try to um, present ideas in a way that are not shocking to the reader. They're kind of comfortably familiar, but in a in a way that makes the reader. Uh, maybe read it a second time and say you know uh, this is very familiar but I've never thought of it in this way right uh, so that's that's uh, maybe the only purposeful aspect of of my writing is is to go back and question things that we've taken for granted and then, uh, uh reevaluate uh you know, our, our understanding of that, and, and, and what, if anything new, can we can we bring to our understanding? And that's how we prosper, right, as, as individuals.
1: Definitely. I mean, it, it's a good point. I mean, if, if we're going to understand and learn from these texts, right, um, there's, a, there's a particular reason they were written the way they were, right? And so when we write about them and try to turn them into something else, right, we try to turn them into quine or, you know, and whatever else kind of things that we work on, we, we're, we're going to necessarily miss something, right? Why did Zhuangzi write like that, right? It wasn't... Yeah kind of for nothing, right? Um, so I think that's that's one of the really cool things that that you get, I think from 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 your book is to see some of those different ways that we might approach a text, even just looking at it differently stylistically, right? It kind of changes the way that we think about it, a particular text.
2: yeah, and I think it, like if we read the Confucian text, you know, be it the Analects or the mencius or 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 Schwinze, um, they're written in a very specific way. have a very specific message, a specific audience in mind. And they just drill through repetition the same ideas over and over, you know, about what it means to be a good human being, what it means to be a bad human being, what are your goals in life, what are the relationships you should have or not have, so on. Taoism uh, doesn't do that. And then when we get into the Han Dynasty, you know, we we, we kind of have this this opening of the eyes of the people there. Huang Daoism, uh, uh, Wang Chong, uh, the Huainanzi, and people are like grabbing stuff from all these different texts and bringing it together. Uh, And that's, that's, I think we have to ask why, why did that happen at that time in, in China? You know, if you have, Confucian as, as the Orthodox teaching in the Han, right. With the establishment of the bureaucracy and social hierarchy and all that. uh, Was this, was this a response, like a backlash to that? Was it a kind of rebellion or is this, a way for people to actually say hey we're being intellectually suppressed and Taoism provides us an outlet through which we can actually remain true to who we are right and you know because you you've you've read all of these texts yeah
1: so the 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 concept at the core of your book, the concept of nothingness, right? This is kind of like a major, you know, when you see you know, those familiar with the Taoist tradition, see nothingness, so like that's that's a big concept. Yeah. Um, how can can this be? Is this something that's a more general concept in early Chinese texts, or is this something that the Zhuangzi is thinking about in a specific way? And um, what and and what are the ways in which the Zhuangzi, in specific, is thinking about this this idea of nothingness?
2: Uh. You know, it's, it, it's funny, if you, um, if you do a search of all the uh, early texts, so like the Warring States texts, um, you can literally count on a few fingers the number of people who use the concept of nothingness, uh, not in a grammatical sense, because the Chinese character has a grammatical sense uh, as a negation, right, meaning not, but the way that I am interpreting it uh, at least in this first book, metaphysically. So Wu as nothingness. Uh, there's, there's really only a handful of, of instances. Um, the earliest uh, text, we can say, you know, the uh, the Book of Changes, Yijing, uh, that text itself doesn't really talk about nothingness or Wu. Uh, in this kind of metaphysical or or an metaphysical way, uh, when we read the, the the commentary by Wang Bi, which was you know in the uh, the Three Kingdoms period, so this is many many centuries after the I Ching was written, he's the one that introduces the concept of nothingness uh, as an interpretive tool to the Book of Changes, but the Book of Changes itself doesn't talk about it. Now, if we move to Laozi's Dao De Jing. There's only a handful of chapters that use nothingness in the way that uh, I am discussing with regards to Zhuangzi. Um, The earliest chapter, of course, is chapter 11, and it talks about the wheel hubs, right? The 30 hubs, the 30 spokes uh, uh, sharing one central hub. And he says, well, it's the idea, the nothingness of the hub that gives the wheel its functionality. And of course, Wang Bi has a commentary on that. Uh, and the second famous chapter in the Tao Te Ching that talks about nothingness, uh, chapter forty, um, which specifically offers a kind of ontocosmological reading of the term, says the myriad things uh, in the world, you know, get their life from being, but being arises out of non-being or nothingness. So it's very clear in the Chinese. And Wang Bi has a commentary on that. So when I read that, that was kind of the uh, first inspiration uh, for this for this book. Uh, going through the rest of the Dao De Jing, there's there's really not much else. So I have to go to the commentaries. The Zhuangzi has uh, quite a lot in there. Outside of the Zhuangzi, though, in terms of Warring States texts, this there's, there's nothing else. So we have to go to the Han Dynasty. And uh, in the Han, we have the Uh, Huainanzi. Again, a text that you're familiar with, where there's a couple of chapters, uh, chapter two, um, and chapter fourteen, that specifically use nothingness as a kind of um, originator, right? uh, Some people would call it a first principle, right? It's a a kind of cosmological. Uh, doctrine. So the Huananzu is repeating basically what Lao said in chapter 40. So uh, being comes from non-being. Then when you go into the post-Han period in the Three Kingdoms era and then you have the rise of neo Daoism. this is when you have an explosion and everybody is basically talking about uh, Wu or non-being slash nothingness in this kind of uh, metaphysical uh, manner. So, in the book, I don't talk a lot about uh, these uh, neo daoist thinkers um, uh, because the focus is on is on Zhuangzi. Uh, but I think there's enough in the Zhuangzi text to develop quite a systematic philosophy of nothingness, uh, either metaphysically or, as I will do in subsequent books in terms of um, philosophy of knowing, or even ethics. Uh, but it's interesting, the Wu appears in all the Confucian texts and all the other texts, but it's used in a grammatical sense, not in this metaphysical sense. Uh, so that's, uh, that's the main theme of, of this book, is what do the Daoists mean by a metaphysics of non-being or nothingness?
1: So the, 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 the reasons, right. So what the concern with, with nothingness, is it mainly a concern with things like change, like a precondition for change, something like this, there has to be nothing in order for there to be movement or change, or is it, or is it a concern with origination or is it a concern with both or something else? Well, one of
2: the, uh, so one of the challenges when I was, when I was writing this, um, uh, you know, you read the Western thinkers and they, they talk about nothingness or non-being. It's, it's always um, as an absolute nothing, right? As a void, um, something that annihilates something else. So it has very negative connotations. Huh? But the whole idea of Taoist philosophy is not about negation, the negative. It's about the positive, right? Um, how does one thing become something else? How do things uh, open into other things? Uh, So change and transformation is the very core of Taoism. Uh, Now, why should non-being or nothingness be an exception to that? Uh, Because if you make it a constant, unchanging kind of paradigm, then what is the problem? Then the problem is that Taoism becomes like medieval Christianity, where you have creation ex nihilo, right? You have the absolute nothing, and then things just magically appear out of out of thin air. Mm -hmm. But Taoism, you can't have that. Why? Because there is always the idea of Tao, the presence of Tao in the background of things. So you cannot have an absolute negative, otherwise then you need to explain the relationship between that absolute negative and Dao. And it's very clear when you read, you know, the the chapters that I mentioned in in, uh, Da De Jing or those in the Zhuangzi or the commentaries or other texts, the Chinese say, non-being or nothingness precedes being. But being and non-being both arise simultaneously out of Tao. Now, if that was an absolute void or, or negativity, then you have creation ex nihilo. And, and you know, that, that just doesn't work. The Chinese didn't think like that. So then the, the issue then becomes, how do you explain nothingness as a kind of generative element, right? So I I talk about um, uh, positive uh, nothingness or positive creational non-being or, you know, these these different uh, expressions to say that things uh, are not born out of nothingness, but nothingness makes their birth possible. So they carry with them into their lives this original nothingness. And yet through the whole course of their life, that nothingness remains a part of their life. So life is, a, is, is continuous change, right? uh, endless cycles of alternation, uh, ones that we are aware of, ones that we are not aware of. And yet there is always the element of a kind of reverting back to or returning back to, in the Taoist um, language, uh, uh, one's root. So the root is that nothingness, right? And the nothingness is itself rooted in Tao. So we have this this kind of uh, vertical way of looking at the creation of, of the universe, all the things in the universe, and all the different relationships of these things in the universe. It's not horizontal, it's vertical, and yet that verticality is circular. So no matter where you are, you can always find your way back to uh, uh, the kind of original state um, of your being or of your non-being. Right? Uh, so it's a, it's a way of explaining change that's quite different from what we see in the Book of Changes, right? Uh, the changing of the hexagrams, or in the Han Dynasty, the philosophy of Yin and Yang, and in the Five, uh, the five Agents. Right. so it's an alternative kind of cosmology, but it's one that's I think very um, accessible to people, very understandable because you're not talking about uh, abstract notions like yin and yang or different elements, wood and fire. It's like, well, today I'm I'm uh, my fire element is in a dominant position, my water element is in a, inferior. So what do I have to do to you know restore balance? That's Chinese medicine. Huh? Uh, But in terms of living, you know, explaining the meaning of life and uh, one's own mortality, you know, it becomes a bit hard to convince people. So I I found that Zhuangzi did a really good job of explaining in clear terms uh, all of these major questions that, that, you know, people have. uh, And doing it in a way via nothingness that doesn't scare people away because right? that's that's the perennial question: what what comes after life? Right, if if it's if it's a void, if it's just a you know a blackness, then of course people are going to be very resistant to it. Uh, they're going to be very afraid of it, and so on. And when you read Taoist uh, texts, they say no, you have no reason to be that. It's it's simply part of the natural uh, transformation of things. Right, even Tao itself, when it is no longer busy. Uh, allowing for the creation of things when it's when it's returning to its original states of still quietude, what is that? That is a kind of nothingness, right? And when it's when it's doing things, creating processes of change, that is that is being. But being and non-being or being nothingness they are inseparable. Uh, so I think this is a, a it's a very relevant part of. In not just Tao's philosophy, but, uh, but but all all Chinese philosophy, and it's something um, that we don't really find in the majority of Western philosophers. So, so one of the yeah.
1: really interesting things that I thought kind of that you talked about early in the book was this connection between the concept of Tao and the concept of the One or E, mm-hmm. and which really that that's been one of these kind of uh, distinctions that's confused me for a while. I mean, because in, in some texts, like in the Huainanzi, it seems uh, like they're interchangeable. Just Dao and the E are the same thing. Um, and sometimes it seems like something else is going on. And I thought you had a really interesting take on the relationship uh, between Tao and the One in the Zhuangzi. Could you uh, explain what what that uh, what your take on that is?
2: Yeah. So uh, of course, prior to writing the book, I have to work out these different you know levels on on, on the verticality of of um, of existence, if you will. Uh, so you 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 have ordinary things at the very bottom, right? Finite beings, um, and then you have the kind of opposite of those finite beings. Uh, so, so the death of those finite beings. Um, uh, so you have a pair there, right? Being and non-being, life and death. Then you move to the ontological level. So you have being with a capital B. So what is its equivalent other? Well, uh, it would be uh, nothingness, right? Okay? Uh, but if ontological being, and if we can call it ontological nothingness, if they're a pair, and they come from something higher than them, then what is that higher level? Uh, well, for me, that is um, the one, or what the Zhuangzi would call chaos, right? Uh, hundu. Now, there's, there's, there's a lot of different names for this one. Besides, uh, in Chinese, Yi, uh, you have the great one, right? Uh, tai yi. You have uh, the great beginning, uh, Taishu, uh, as well as the one. Uh, you also have the, the original uh, Yuan, uh, and so on. So, so this level of oneness, is it, is it like, uh, you know, the, um, uh, like Plotinus talks about in the Indians, right? Or Spinoza uh, with, with uh, his monism, right? A singular one. Um, for me, in Taoism, no, you, you, you can't have a singularity. Even Tao is not a singularity. So what is, what is this one? Well, it's it's the collectivity, as I, I would call it, the collectivity of, of beings and non-beings uh, in a pre-named state, right? So prior to human, uh, not human awareness or human um uh, human encounter with these things prior to humans naming them, you know, A or B, male or female, right? Uh, and adding further attributes, tall, short, old, young, all of these different descriptives would, that, that kind of add layers and layers of separation from that thing and Tao. Uh, in that state of oneness, things are, their authentic or they're genuine in the chinese gen they they're genuine selves so they lack self-awareness of themselves as being different from other things because there's, there's no names right there's no uh, kind of normative uh, uh, conventions being used to say you are different from this other thing and this difference is good or bad uh, so for the sage uh, uh, You know, harmonizing or returning to the state of oneness, this collectivity of all things. uh, This is the objective of the sage. And this is why in in Taoist philosophy, they say the sage, um, he has a a full perspective of reality. He sees things in a way that nobody else can see them because he's not reliant upon language or concepts of knowing in order to make judgments uh, of any kind. Uh, so for me, this, this oneness is something that is achievable. It's not a mystical one, right? It's a very achievable one, but it requires some work on our behalf in order to get there. Uh, and this is something I think we will talk about uh, you know, in a few minutes, right? The idea of uh, forgetting or, or fasting. So that's, that's one of or two of the ways that we can get to this state of oneness. But it's it's not it's not like praying. You go to church and you pray um, in any any kind of religious church or a mosque or, or a, a temple, uh, and then suddenly you're one with the uh, with the divine. It's it's not about that, right? It's 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 a kind of protracted uh, way of cultivating oneself to live in harmony with with the world in its in its natural unity.
1: So you mentioned this idea of uh, fasting and the fasting of the mind that that Zhuangzi talks about in uh, in chapter chapter 4 for example. So w- what is Zhuangzi's conception of uh self-forgetting which is connected to this project and how does this fit into his his overall uh project? So how do you read that is this uh, this this discussion of fasting of the mind that you see in in chapter 4 of Zhuangzi? Uh well you know the, the traditional
2: way of Talking about this um, uh, this phrase that actually Zhuangzi invented, sitting in forgetfulness, right, zuo wang, or fasting of the mind, xin jia, Zhuangzi came up with these concepts. Uh, uh, the traditional way of explaining them is, well, this is like Taoist uh, meditation, right? This is the the seed of what will become Taoist religion. Uh, I, I I very much disagree with that assessment. Uh, other people say well it's kind of a tao skepticism like extreme or hard skepticism you know you just deny um that anything is noble at all so you kind of like um deny the concepts of concepts in a very modern day kyoto zen fashion you know you know the concept of non-being even if the concept exists it's a concept and you have to get rid of that so you you kind of expunge all these things from your mind, I, I don't think Taoism is about is about that because uh, as I said earlier, that's a very negative thing, right? And if you are denying yourself access to different ways of experience or knowing the world, then that is not a program for uh, self growth or self maturation, expansion, however you want to call it. Right? So uh, sitting in forgetfulness for me is is part of this praxis, right? I, in the book, I use life praxis. So it's it's a, a program, a practice that the sage or the gentleman or the Taoist practitioner, follower, uh, or admirer like you and I, uh, what we do to get closer uh, to Tao by way of returning to a state of, harmonious unity or oneness with things. So what are, we, what are we forgetting when we sit and and we forget? Well, when you read the story, uh, it's very uh, uh, clear. You, you have different levels. Right? You need to first con- uh, uh, forget the uh, Confucian conventions of what it means to be a good human being. So benevolence and righteousness. Then you forget the things that are attached to Uh, bodily action. So music and ritual propriety, right? The emotions and then ritual. So how do you conduct yourself uh, with with others or publicly? When you forget those, then you can just behave normally, right? In a very carefree manner. But that's not enough. You need to go further. So then you need to forget attachment uh, to one's physical self, that certain parts of the body have, uh, you know, they're more precious, or they have priority over other parts. So when I when I when I teach uh, any course on Taoism I always ask the students said if you had to lose one part of your body what would you choose first? <laughs> you know they, they oh, uh, maybe in, you know uh, like a hand or a finger or a foot you know uh, I said okay well if if you have to lose your head uh, how would you feel about that? Right? I said, well, uh, yeah, I'd pre- I, I would die, you know, it's, it's pretty important, but why? You know, because, well, that's where my brain is, and that's where I do all of my thinking, and, uh, and that's, that's where I kind of evaluate things, and, uh, you know, uh, rationality is in the mind, uh, uh, you know, so you have this, this, this kind of tug of war between the mind and the body, the classic du- duality. Is it? Uh, yeah, but if you see yourself in a Taoist fashion, even your head is not important. Your mind is one of the barriers to achieving this kind of cosmic unity. Yeah. So, Guan says you have to spit out your intelligence, right? Discard your mind. So then, what are you left with? Well, if you don't have a body, if you don't have your mind, so you get rid of your ego or concepts. You know, the, the the conception of a kind of subjective self. What are you left with? You're left with spirit. So if you see yourself as a, as a spirit, uh, then there is nowhere you cannot go. There is nothing you cannot experience. Uh, this is, for me, the goal of Taoism, which is a kind of ultimate expression of, of freedom, where you lose dependency on all aspects of knowing and doing, uh, judgments of right and wrong and all of that stuff. Uh, and you just wander, right? Carefree wandering, as as, as they say. Uh, how do you do that? You do that by way of spirit. Uh, so I think this this way and and the other story of um, uh, fasting of the mind. These two, uh, they're just two different versions of of the same objective. Uh, and of course, this is also a way for the. Uh, the was da- to 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 have jabs at the, the Confucians, you know the the body is like, you know, oh my God, your parents gave you this life. This is their body. You can't do anything, you know, to harm it. And if if it is harmed by way of tattoo or piercing, oh, you shame them. They'll disown you. And the Daoists, you know, all the stories. All oh, these people, they shave their hair. They have tattoos. They're missing limbs. It's like wow, all the social outcasts. For the Confucians, the Taoists love it, right? And they're the role models. People with disabilities, with speech impediment, it doesn't matter why, because they see beyond all of that and they, they are true to themselves, right? So spiritual freedom. That's, for me, instead of spiritual meditation. That's, that's the goal of, of this program of uh, fasting or, or forgetting.
1: So you discussed this concept of, of the trace um, in the Zhuangzi. Um, how, does this, how does this work? Um, and how does this trace, does this uh, reveal the inherent nothingness of things? And does this, does this happen via Tao? Or how does this concept of the trace connect to this, this, uh, this concept of Tao for Zhuangzi? Uh, well, Zhuangzi uses
2: the concept of trace, ji. Uh, which literally translates as footprint. Uh-huh. Um, he, he uses it not a lot. It was actually uh, the commentator Guo Xia from the Three Kingdoms period that turned it into a philosophical concept, a metaphysical concept. Um, but when we read the text, the text is always talking about the sage as being without self, right? selfless. The sage is nameless, uh, so the sage does everything possible to remove as much attention from themselves as possible. Yeah. So, unlike the Confucian gentleman who is always chasing after and striving for attention, recognition, uh, praise, and glory, right? Uh, and we can name uh, some some current uh, <laughs> some current people who are like that. Uh, uh, but the the Daoists, of course, they they shun all of that. Why? Because they view um, all of these uh, 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 goals, right, uh, as as potentially harmful. Um, so the more useful you are to the world, uh, and the Zhuangzi has a lot of stories illustrating this, the more the world will take advantage of you. And when your usefulness, the advantage of your whatever it is, right, your strength, your intelligence, um, your beauty, your wealth, once that is used up, the world will discard you. So the sage, in order to protect him or herself, makes themselves as useless as possible. So when you are useless, the world overlooks you to the effect. That you just become a trace, you just become a kind of uh, a memory, right? Or a shadowy ghost-like figure that nobody really knows too much about or where they are. People go and you know they seek you out. Uh, You don't leave your mark on people. So when people come to you and ask you for your advice, you don't directly uh, tell them this is what you should do, huh? Because, again, that's the kind of negativity of suppression. So the Taoist would say, well, eh, eh, you have some options, right? You can think of this, you can think of that, but you need to decide what is um, proper to yourself. Because I can't tell you that. Only you know that. So in this open-ended way of engaging people, the sage does not make a mark on the world. So they don't leave traces in the world. They try to erase as much influence that they have on the world as possible to remain obscure or mysterious. Why? In order to live their life to its full potential in terms of years, in terms of health, and also as we we, we mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, this kind of spiritual freedom. But the more baggage you have, the more traces that can come back to you, then the less freedom you have, right? Uh, The less mobility you have to do and think as you you wish. So the concept of being traceless uh, is one of the Taoist ways that the sage is able to avoid uh, the, the potential injuries that come with names and recognition you know, fame and so on. Um, and I think the world, uh, you know, today in this this era of, I don't know the name of all of the uh, different apps, but a lot of, you know, the ones that are in the news recently, right? TikTok and Facebook and Twitter and whatever else the kids are using, right? That I don't use. I mean, what are you doing? Is you are, you are leaving uh, marks on the world that cannot be erased, right? Uh, and uh, there might come a time in your life when you regret having made those marks, but you can't erase them. So it's better not to make marks in the world in the first place. But you you let people come and make a mark on you, and in return, as the Taoists say, you simply reflect that marking back on those people. Right, the mirror. You reflect back to people without retaining. I can't be Alexis because you're you're in the States and I'm here in Hong Kong. <laughs> no, no, I could, I could, you know, after this, this interview, I'm going to dream that I'm Alexis and boom, I'm you, you know, with with two boys and, uh, at Yukon and all that. That's why not? <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the, there's a lot of question uh, uh, on the butterfly dream. It's like, well, what is, what is Kwanza actually doing? Is he saying that, you know, it's impossible for a human to, um, fully comprehend the, uh, the experience of non-human life or is or is he saying oh animals or you know they're they're just inferior uh, inferior beings so it's easy for us to dream them because they lack the sophistication of of the human mind or uh, you know is, is he mocking uh, other people calling you know by being butterflies like the Confucians, you're just little butterflies you're insignificant you know, and here I am, Zhuangzi, and I can dream that I'm you, and boom, I just wake up and you're gone, right? I can change the world, so maybe uh, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he's saying, "Well, yeah, that's that's the power of Taoism, right? It's, uh, the whole world is a butterfly."
1: <laughs> so, is this what you think is going on in the uh, in the famous uh, butterfly dream passage in, in chapter two of the Zhuangzi? I mean, so the way the way that I've always read this passage is that um Zhuangzi is basically saying that you know, considering whether he's Zhuangzi or the butterfly there there doesn't have to be a right answer right you simply um be what you what you find yourself at the time right um and then giving up this idea that there has to be a right answer somehow frees you uh, and enables you to make the most of of your situation to find value in every situation how do you understand what's uh what's what's going on here but but but
2: again to to come back to the theme of the book, how do we actually uh, put ourselves into the body of the butterfly, right? Metaphorically, how can we see the world through the eyes of the butterfly? Now, you can you can sit there and you can, you know, you can be like the Neo-Confucians and say, I'm going to discover the principle of a thing simply by investigating it, right? So I'll go into like a bamboo grove and I'll just stare at the bamboo for. Days and days and days until I get the principle of being a bamboo, you know. That's that's the the the, the Neo Confucians. Uh, is it is it like that? Well, probably not. You, you you'd go nuts if you did that, right? Uh, so it's not like anthropomorphism. I I make myself or I give the, the the non-human species human characteristics so I can relate to them. I think when when you are one with the world and you have this this harmony with all the things, right? That was, uh, Say the myriad things, yeah, the one. Uh, there is really no separation between human and butterfly, or, or the story of the joy of fish, the, the human and the fish. Huh? Whatever makes fish happy also can make me happy. What makes me happy also can make a fish. So if a butterfly feels pure joy in just simply flying flower to flower, why I cannot feel the pure joy of simply wandering from place to place? That's, that's exactly the same experience. Huh? So in this level of oneness, where there really is no, 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 no ego, huh? or there is no classification, human, non-human, to, to uh, mentally separate the butterfly and and myself, then I can be anything that I want to, huh? and, and the platform that allows us to do that, for me, you know, arguing in the book is this idea of nothingness. Right. Uh, so on that level of nothingness, uh, which is the root of all things, because that's what unites us in Tao, huh? is uh, uh, all life is grounded and built around, and includes various manifestations of nothingness. Right. You can call them uh, emptiness or cavities or voids, but everything in the human body, everything in Everything in the world has these empty gaps and spaces; these uh, kind of presences of of nothingness. Huh? So, if 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 I can uh, picture myself and the butterfly on that level, then I can know what it is for us to be equal, right? And you know, uh, chapter two of 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 the Drones is about the equalization of things, not through a reductionism but through a a returning to a state of of oneness or of of cosmic harmony, of unity, right? Where there is no uh, kind of uh, epistemological or even ontological difference between myself and any other self because we are all things created of Tao, right? Being is being, regardless of the form that it takes. Uh, So... Nothingness is is kind of the road back to Tao that all things can can uh, find themselves on, right? Uh, so it doesn't require any kind of uh, transcendental experience, out of body experience, or or any kind of religious enlightenment, uh, you know, or 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 after death uh, experience. You can do it while you're alive, and that's the great thing of of the Dzongs is all these stories of these people who. Uh, have these perhaps momentary uh, um, integration with Tao, right? So they they kind of go through like a warm up, you know, uh, these these uh, multi day uh, exercises of of retraining themselves to be one with the world, and then boom, they they are in harmony with Tao, and it lasts, you know, for as long as it lasts, and then they go back to being a human being. Yeah? Uh, because they're not quite at the, the, the sage level, yeah. but I think it's a very interesting uh, uh, story, a very powerful story that bewilders all the you know undergrad students. It's like, oh man, it's like you know what was Dronza on? Was, was like what <laughs> that that you know? Oh, is is he you know a butterfly dreaming that he's Dronza? But Dronza wrote this book, so you know if the butterfly is really you know if Dronza is really the butterfly then that means that the butterfly wrote the book Zhuangzi. It's like, whoa, that's, that's, <laughs> how is that possible? You know, so uh, I think that's, that's just the crazy madness of, of, you know, Zhuangzi as, as one of these very rare people in human history, you know, wicked sense of humor, but just a brilliant, brilliant mind. I mean, how, how do you argue with that? How can you prove you right now, you are actually a figment of a butterfly's imagination. How can you disprove that? So uh, yeah, that's it, it, It's very interesting, um, and I think one of the reasons the butterfly story, the the joy of fish, all the other skill stories, and all that. Uh, the reason uh, they play such a central role in the text is to one to shock the reader, right? To say, well, our humanity it's it's not as all knowing it all powerful as we think it is. Uh-huh. Uh, but also to put us on a, a kind of equal standing with all other, all other forms of life in the world, right? Animates as well as inanimate. And we think we're great, there's always something greater. We think we're bad, there's always something worse. Uh-huh. So the whole message is don't even bother thinking.
1: You know,
2: who is greater than you? Or who is worse than you? Just be yourself. So that great, equal, you know, equalizer of things, uh, for me is 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 nothingness. But it's an equalization, as I said, in a very positivistic sense.
1: So I wanted to ask you, uh, what what projects are you working on now? What's uh, what's next for you after after this book? What directions are you uh, planning to go in?
2: Uh, well, currently I'm. Uh, Writing a book on one of these uh, neo daoist uh, uh, thinkers, Ji uh, Kang, um, and he, had, he has a lot of crazy stuff to say. I mean, this guy this guy did drugs. I mean, he he was like a huge fan of <laughs> a huge fan of drugs. Uh, uh, so if you know, if he was in the modern, if he was alive today, he'd be like one of the first to open a marijuana store. Like legalization, absolutely, it's it's awesome, right? Uh, so I'm 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 putting the final touches on on that, um, and then the plan is to to go back and and write a couple more books on on Zhuangzi, as I mentioned uh, uh, at the start of this this conversation. Um, why? Because I think if I just do this one book on the metaphysics or the cosmology of nothingness, um, it's really leaving. Uh, three quarters of what the Zhuangzi has to say unsaid uh, uh, so that's the first thing. I start off with this cosmology and metaphysics because that's those are the big questions, and they're the most difficult to deal with, right And then what I'll do is I'll kind of narrow my scope in the next two books. Um, so the the order of them i'm I'm not quite decided on probably I will. Do the second volume on uh, theories of knowing. Um, so how how does nothingness impact and affect our ability to know things, our ability to communicate, either through spoken words or unspoken words? Uh, you know, Dwanza um, has this very interesting concept of. No words, right? Non-words, which he is uh, getting from the Laozi, because uh, uh, Laozi in the Dao De Jing says his teaching is the teaching without words, right? The uh, Wu Yi Well, how do you teach somebody without without words, without language? Laozi says, "Where can I find somebody who speaks no words to have a word with him?" It's like, "Wow, what are you what are you talking about? How how can you communicate without language?" That's the whole premise of human existence, right? Communication through words. Well, as we see in the text, all the Taoist texts and, and the, the Neo-Daoist texts, uh, you can communicate non-verbally through images, through kind of intuited uh, feelings, right? Um, or through this idea of a kind of intercommunication by way of oneness with other things. You know, uh, simply being next to something, you can know what that thing is going through, through body language or kind of, you know, intuition or whatever. Um, so the second book will probably be on that. So of course, you will be a critique on the Confucian um, uh, use of language as one of the, the you know, the arbiters of society and, and all that. Um, and then the, the, the third book will, will be on um, uh, Taoist ethics. Uh, and I think it will be guided by, by the central question, uh, what is Taoist ethics? Is there even such a thing? Uh, because if, if we are getting rid of our attachment and dependency on self, on body, and on intellect, uh, and we're just left with spirit, uh, what kind of an ethics can we have? If we're a Taoist, and and the whole idea is uh, to conjoin with other things in this glorious oneness, yeah, uh, then there is no other. So we cannot have a like a Levinasian ethics of the other. So what kind of an ethics do we have? Uh, so this will be, I think, uh, the most challenging of the three books. So I'll save it for. I mean, in terms of me writing it, right. Uh, not in terms of the scale of the topic, in terms of me writing it. Um, What is Taoist ethics? Uh, uh, Can we have like a a Taoist amorality? Right? Um, uh, Is there such a thing as like Taoist altruism? Because the whole idea of of, uh, being without self-interest, right? Uh, Self-conceit. So you do things for the betterment of others, but then the Taoist would say, well, that's okay so long as you're not motivated by another reason, right? To help others in order to get something. You're just doing it purely because you want to do it. Uh, is that a kind of ethics? And if so, um, then this Taoist ethics or non-ethics, uh, you know, what kind of a role would it play in the modern world? Because one of the things that I, I, I try to do in these two books and what I did do in the first book is to show how Taoism actually remains relevant in 2020 and it's not just this antiquated philosophy we read it and we say, yeah, that was 25 years 2,500 years ago so what what's, what's you know what, what, what can we do with it now right so uh, I think the difficulty will be to show the relevancy for the modern world. Um, to draw people um, into reading uh, more about Taoism, perhaps trying to use parts of Taoist philosophy in their daily life, or share some of the insights they might have in reading these texts with friends, colleagues, whatever, uh, because a lot of people are are ignorant of this uh, uh, tradition in in China. so that will be, uh, you know, for the next uh, uh, two or three years. I think that will that will keep me busy. Uh, beyond that, uh, I I really don't know. <laughs> uh, I I you know I, I I try not to plan my life as uh, as a Taoist uh, would not do. You know, plan your life out uh, because hey, things happen, right? So uh, uh, plans are made to be broken, right? That's that's what my that's what my mom always said. So uh the plan without without planning, you know uh, uh, so who knows I don't know where I'll be uh, I don't know uh, where my interests will be uh, I might go into Buddhism, I might go into Confucianism uh, I might uh, do modern modern Chinese thought uh, really no way of knowing but the um uh, I think the the big thing for me is to get these other two books so I have a trilogy on drawn. Uh, um that'll be an uh, achievement enough and then after that maybe maybe i take a break for for a year or two you know <laughs> I, I do 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 some wandering in 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 the world or 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 wherever i happen to be and uh, you know uh, yeah just just get some fresh inspiration of of uh, uh, where to go next uh, i don't know i don't know
1: so i want to thank you again uh, david for for uh, joining me today um once again, uh, everyone, check out the book. It's an excellent book, um, and thanks for sitting down with me to talk about to talk about Zhuangzi today.
2: Thank you again, Alexis. Uh, I'm glad that you um, you read the book uh, and that you 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 got something out of it. Uh, not necessarily agree with everything, but uh, if if you if you get one thing out of it, then mission accomplished. So I'm, you know, uh, for a guy who's one of my competitors in the field, I'm. You know, I'm, <laughs> it's quite an honor for you to say that you you enjoyed it. So I, I thank you for that, and uh, I, I I enjoy all of your work. And you 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 continuously amaze me with your output. Uh, I've you you set a very high bar for all of us. So uh, I I look forward to your 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 future works as much as uh, as uh, you look forward to mine. And uh, I hope in the future we can turn the tables, and I will actually be uh, the one interviewing you. So. Uh, yeah, that that would be a good thing for us. Huh? <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, uh, good health to to you and to to all the listeners. Uh, and uh, yeah, pick up the book and read it. And uh, any 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 questions or or.